This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello, I'm Oliver Condit, the editor of BBC Music Magazine, and welcome to the BBC Music Podcast. You can buy a copy of the magazine at your local newsagents or download our app to your iPad, Kindle Fire or Android tablet. And for the latest music news and more, head to our website at classical-music.com. This week, we've gathered together members of the BBC Music Magazine editorial team for First Listen, a monthly slot where we chat about and rate an important new release. You'll have noticed from the change of voice that I am not Oliver Condy. I am, in fact, the deputy editor, Jeremy Pound. And with me in the studio today are our reviews editor, Rebecca Franks. Bonjour. And our online editor and staff writer, Rosie Pentruth. Howdy. This month, we've been listening to Broadway Lafayette, a new disc on the Sony classical label, in which American pianist Simone Dinerstein plays Ravel's Piano Concerto in G, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, and Lasser's The Circle and the Child all accompanied by the MDR Leipzig Radio Symphony Orchestra under conductor Christian Yevi. We'll begin with a bit of the Ravel. Thank you. 
This disc, as Simone Dinerstein explains in the sleeve notes, and as the title implies, celebrates the cross of cultures between the US and France. And so we begin with the jazz-inflected piano concerto in G by Ravel, a Frenchman inspired by all things American. Then we move on to the Circle in the Child, a piano concerto by the contemporary composer Philip Lasser, who is half French, half American. And we round off with the Rhapsody in Blue by the Paris-loving George Gershwin. The Ravel and Gershwin will doubtless be familiar with many listeners, the latter won't, as it's a world premiere recording. So, let's take things in the order as they come on the disc. We just heard a moment from the beginning of the first movement of the Ravel Concerto. Rebecca, can you just fill us in a little with the history of this piece? Yes, so this concerto was written between 1929 and 1931. Ravel had, in fact, just been on a concert tour of the US. He'd taken in so over 20 American cities. Um, it, was a, it was a piano tour, and... He really enjoyed the the whole experience. In fact, he he loved seeing the the big American cities, encountering that way of life, um, and especially hearing the music. It was here he encountered jazz. He heard Gershwin's musical funny face. He actually met Gershwin, um, as well as, as other figures, including Chrysler and, and Bartok, and. I think he just what he liked about it actually was he wasn't composing when he was on that trip. He was he was playing the piano, and I think the routine kind of he really enjoyed that. He felt very um, sort of at ease there. Um, but when he came back, he was then he'd encountered jazz, we say, and that really makes its mark on this concerto. And so, what we might expect from a performance of this concerto is a little bit of New York American jazz and pizzazz combined with a touch of typical Ravelian Gallic delicacy and sophistication. Do you reckon we get this on this on this disc, Rosie? Mm, well, it's certainly very energetic, kind of from the start. You've got this, um, especially in the orchestra, you've got this weightiness, um, but it's still quite kind of bright and connected. So it does kind of recall that brash New York jazzy kind of feel in the first movement, I think, for me. Um, but I feel when Dinnerstein enters, um, there could have been a tiny bit more character. Um, and throughout the whole concerto, actually, it feels like she may actually not have heard that much jazz. Now, um, the sort of true, authentic jazz of jazz bars, you know, late at night when the musicians have been playing together for years and you just hear this amazing kind of um, spontaneity. Um, of course, it's not for me to say she probably has listened to it, but I just felt with the performances, it felt like she hadn't. Um, um, as for the kind of refinement you were talking about from the the typical Ravel, um, you'd expect that to come through perhaps in this gorgeous second movement. Um, again, I, I felt there could have been slight, slightly more character in um, Dinnerstein's playing. Um, I was waiting for some real warmth in the, the sort of sustained phrases. Um, uh, and then when she begins the kind of circling semiquavers, you again expect a tiny bit more warmth, I think, here, um, and some more nu- nuances in the phrasing. But but it is nice and delicate um, against the sort of sustained orchestral parts. Yeah, she's she's very good technically. I mean, she's got good technical command of the fast movements and the slow movement, I would say. So, um, so yeah, it does come through slightly. What did you make of it, Rebecca? For me, it did slightly lack the sort of Gallic delicacy that you were talking about there. This is a piece that has been recorded so many times. So, you know, it's one that the competition is very strong. And I think of recent performances, for example, by the French pianist Jean Aflam Babuzet, which really has that ebullience and sparkle. And uh, Benjamin Groveson's recent performance, which is, again, has this wonderful magical quality that I slightly I slightly missed that in this performance, I must say. Um, I felt this was a much, I think you used the the word weightier, it was a much sort of heavier performance in a way. Um, and for Ravel, for me, that's not 
quite the spirit of the music. Yes, it didn't quite, for me, it didn't quite have the sort of etherealness that you need to have in that second movement, where you kind of, the second movement should really float a bit, whereas this one sounded just a touch too deliberate. That said, I actually did quite enjoy the, the drama which she brings to the first movement. I thought that had quite a lot of impact. Anyway, let's have another moment from Simone de Nestein's performance of the Ravel, then. Here's um, a bit from the Divine Second Movement. And now we move on to the world premiere on the disc, Philip Lasser's The Circle and the Child. Rosie, can you tell us a little bit about Lasser and his concerto? Like you say, Jeremy, Philip Lasser is an, a living composer. He's half American and half French. Um, he was born in New York and has written several works for orchestra as well as some piano pieces and choral and chamber music. Um, he's actually written a piece for Simone Dinerstein before, um, 12 Variations on a Bach Chorale, which she wrote in 2008, and she's also recorded. Um, again, this concerto is based on a Bach Chorale. Um, loosely, he explains that the five notes heard at the beginning that kind of recur throughout the uh, concerto can be found deep in this chorale, which is Bach's Erkerstein Erkerstein You stars in heaven, you vaulted sky... Well, let's have a little moment from the first movement of the working question, Philip Lasser's The Circle and the Child. Well, there it is. I must admit that, for me, Lasser doesn't do himself a lot of favours with his slightly twee guide to the work in the sleeve notes. Um, take, for example, his description of his use of that Bach chorale which you mentioned, Rosie. Like an exquisite perfume, he writes, Bach's chorale emanates from every passage of my concerto. One hears the chorale as an intimate confession from the piano in dialogue with itself and its orchestral double through the fears and loves of a child. Hmm. Uh, Rebecca, did you hear all that as you listened? I must admit that note also slightly set me on edge before I'd even put the CD on. Um, I'm not quite sure what I would expect from that, but um, Bach is at the heart of the piece, but there's nothing, you shouldn't expect anything kind of like the sort of contrapuntal development or rigour of Bach's music here. Um, that's not the world we're, we're kind of in. Um, if I'm being completely honest, very few details apart from that opening little scale motif really stuck in my mind as I listened to this. I found it quite a hard work to 
really sort of grasp. And I've sort of jotted down a few things as I was listening to it that it kind of reminded me of just to help sort of set it in context. The very first thing I thought was it really reminded me of a Christmas advert for a a sort of a major supermarket or a department store. Um, In the middle movement, I thought that was actually perhaps the best of the three, um, three movements. It was slightly more ambiguous sort of emotionally ambiguous territory it reminded me a little bit of Finzi at moments um a little bit of Ravel and Mother Goose and some of the ways the colours pass between the wind instruments um and there were things I liked about in the first movement it just kind of that scale just scurries off the page and we're just left in this sort of space um and in the third movement there's a little bit more bite because he sort of uses two keys at once so there were sort of things that stood out for me um but as a general piece, it's not one that I found really just... It hasn't really stuck with me, I've got to got to say. And what did you make of it, Rosie? Yeah, exactly. Just just like Rebecca said, it hasn't. It didn't stick with me and I just I found that opening motif really repetitive. And exactly like you said, actually, that's kind of what stayed with me. Um, I must admit that coming to the end of the disc and having listened to the, to the work several times, I still think, didn't find that I really knew that much about Lasser as a composer. I couldn't quite work out what his individual voice was. There's moments, in the, for me, in the last movement where you think, oh, this is sounding quite nice, going somewhere. And he has that, does that strange thing of, kind of, I guess he's obviously, this is intentional, but he lulls you into this lovely sense of security and then sticks in some dissonance. But it, it sounded almost a little bit contrived at times that he was kind of doing it for the sake of it. Let's then hear a passage from that final movement of Lasher's Concerto, and this movement is titled Circles. To finish, we're going to return to an altogether more familiar work, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. You all know that famous opening well. That was the opening of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, of course, and it was performed here by the MDR Leipzig Radio Symphony Orchestra with Simone Dinnerstein at the piano. What's always worth remembering about the Rhapsody is it was originally written for Big Band, Paul Whiteman's Big Band in 1924, to be exact, and then was orchestrated later by Ferdy Grofi, and it's that orchestration that we normally hear today in most recordings. Some of those recordings tend to wallow in the large orchestral forces, others aim to retain an element of the Big Band feel. 
What do you reckon we get here, Rebecca? Well, to my ears, we got a performance that emphasised the sort of classical rather than the jazz side of uh, this concerto, which I guess is in keeping with the theme of the disc. So um, the Ravel being a classical composer that was influenced by jazz and then the other way around, I suppose, for for Gershwin. I slightly missed, if I'm completely honest, some uh, some of the, that jazz feel. There were very broad and spacious tempos um, in in her performance of the Gershwin. But I thought, you know, they did a really nice job with all the different colours of the orchestra um, and everything was sort of very musically done. Excellent. And what, what do you think, Rosie? Mm, yeah, I think any kind of appreciation of this piece is very personal, isn't it? Um, and like Rebecca, I missed the jazz, really. Um, I felt like it could have been more spontaneous, and especially Dinner Stein, I felt she was very, um, again, very just very classical. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's in keeping with the disc. I just missed the jazz and the kind of energy. Excellent. Well, I'm going to completely buck the trend here and say I actually really enjoyed this performance. Um, I thought it was very sophisticated and actually quite a Gallic performance of, of it. Um, I've heard more um, performances than I, than I care to, to mention, and an awful lot of them kind of crash through in a very sort of excitable way. And, and I've got nothing against that, but I just love this because it was a real change from that. It was a very thoughtful account. You felt that she was really kind of taking her time. As you say, the tempos are quite broad, and she was kind of taking in the scenery around her and kind of smelling the coffee, if you like. Um, very deliberate at times, but none the worse for that, I have to say. For me, it's certainly a performance I'll, I'll be returning to quite a lot, I think. Anyway, let's hear a little more of it, shall we? Here's a moment from near the end of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Now that we've happily pounded the streets of 1920s New York, all that remains is for us to give our scores. Rebecca, what do you give this disc? I'd like to give this disc a 6 out of 10. I thought um, it was perfectly good playing, perfectly very musical, um, but it just, for me, didn't sparkle, and the Ravel really does need to sparkle. The latter I didn't particularly take to as a piece of music, and the Gertrude I did enjoy, so I think for me... That was probably the, the strongest part of the disc. But uh, yes, I just felt it could have had that extra bit of inspiration and uh, Gallic sort of fizz. <laughs> Rosie? Um, it's a six for me as well. Um, obviously six points for a world premiere recording, which is interesting, and fantastic um, technical playing. Um, but like I've said throughout, I kind of missed the jazz in places and the kind of energy. Well, I'm going to give it seven out of ten because um, I found it a bit of a curious egg of a disc. The Ravel I enjoyed, but it never really blew me away. Um, the latter, I'm afraid to say, I found really rather forgettable, if I'm honest. And then, as I say, I really enjoyed that Gershwin, and I shall be listening to it an awful lot more. So that's a 7 out of 10 from me, and that gives us a total of 19, which means there's three of us in the studio today, means an average of six and a third. And that brings us to the end of this month's first listen. Do join us next month. We'll be getting together once more to discuss another major recording. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to this BBC Music Magazine podcast, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at classical-music.com or simply head to iTunes.